and only Dale motherfucking Comstock American Badass Volume 9 and my faggot ass wearing a golden hoodie that I look like a jackass in. I went shooting yesterday and I was missing targets left and right. The one video that was taken, I actually hit all the targets and I double tapped at the end and the video cut off but I turned around and I said see me conjure up that Comstock? <laughs> and my friend was like, fuck yeah. And I was like, that's how Dale does it. I was like, two in the fucking head. And, uh, and then I realized that's probably what all my liberal friends think I do every day, is shoot yeah. guns and talk about double tapping people in the head. But enough of that. Enough of my gay-ass stories of me shooting a gun. And we have the American Badass himself. Dale's book, American Badass which will be in the description sticky to the top comment it's a fantastic book it's hilarious but don't take my word for it you can hear dale right now as we go into american badass volume nine there's eight volumes before this they're all fantastic people have become addicted to them they're the sunday special and um people are clearly not tuning into this episode to listen to my dumbass talk so i'm just gonna shut up now dale take it away all right, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. Um, for everybody that's a first-time listener, uh, just a little background. If you want to know more about my background, go to obviously go to the first uh, the first episode, right? And so I'll talk a little bit about my background. You know who I am. Um, right now, I'm calling you you from Bali, Indonesia. I have a business here, I have a home here, and I also have a home in Panama City Beach, Florida, which I will be back to here very soon in the next, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So I come here kind of back and forth every few months. Um, nonetheless, as we were talking about earlier, Tom, and just for everybody out there listening, um, here in Indonesia and in Bali, not Indonesia, but Bali itself, they have a holiday here called Nepi. And... So Nepi is basically it's a um, a daily of Nepi. Yeah, wife's over here telling me how to spell it. Just know it's called Nepi. Okay, Nepi. Um, anyways, it's a it's a day of silence, and essentially what that means is for starting on Saturday at midnight on Saturday morning until Monday morning at six o'clock. It's total silence. You have to. No power, no electricity, no Wi-Fi, no phones. You, you can't leave your house. You can't come outside. Um, basically, you're, you know, theoretically locked yourself inside in the dark so that you can meditate and reflect on uh, <laughs> on your life in the future and the past. Um, they actually have what's called Pachalam, which is a um, like a civil police that literally walks the streets. They wear this, these black and white um, sarongs and headgear and they all have walkie-talkies and basically they're foot patrols and and they're looking for anybody violating uh, the restrictions, you know, the curfew or whatever. And uh, and they will literally roll you up and throw you in jail. Um, so they don't they don't take it too lightly. So why am I sitting here with the lights on on the internet? Because I'm actually in a hotel um, and uh, some of the hotels are exempt as long as after a certain time there's no lights on the outside. Everybody's inside. You know, we have Wi-Fi. That's why I'm calling you and we have lighting so my friend invited me to come here for the weekend with his wife and uh other friends and uh it's a good way to relax and uh we can't work so we can just uh, hang out at a resort and talk to you guys so I, here we are i would um, i would pay to see a foot patrol with walkie-talkies try to arrest you 
Uh, well, they could. There's, they, have, they got numbers, man. They don't walk by like Wednesdays and Tuesdays. They walk in like New York gangs. Man. I, I uh, would pay money yeah. to watch you smoke a hundred of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it won't. I can tell you, it won't work out good for me as an expat in this part of the world. You know, they don't give us. They don't allow us to have a mistake. In fact, their their first uh, course of action is to kick you out of the company, out of the country, man. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I don't want to get all political and stuff, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a stark contrast to America, you know. Americans, you know, we just get let everybody do whatever they want, come on over, take what you want, don't pay taxes, you know, all this crap that's going on. And uh, here in, in Indonesia, not just Indonesia, but the Philippines, um, all of Asia, man, they don't tolerate. You don't, You come over here and you overstay your visa, they will find you and they will lock you up and then they'll mm-hmm. throw you out when they're done with you um the penalties and fines are very high um and they actively seek out anybody that's here that's not supposed to be here um or doing something they're not supposed to be doing like making a little bit of money on the side just to get by for example um totally different different way of life here totally different way of looking at things and i can tell you they're not tolerant of uh anybody coming from any foreigner coming to this country and uh, not playing by the rules, any of the rules, um, they they just won't tolerate it, man. So, um, so I have to be very careful, like all the other expats here, you know, to live by the rules, do the right thing, and stay out of trouble. So, punching a guy in the face is out of the question, um, unless you're ready to go home. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably not going to work out for you. <clears throat> so, what I want to cover today um, in today's chapter, I'm going to cover two two chapters. Um, the first one I want to talk about is the child's hell for a father's profit. The child's hell for a father's profit. And so this was my period in Afghanistan where I was, I, w- I won't be specific for OPSEC reasons, but uh, um, it was a, I was on the Afghan-Pakistani border towards the north. In fact, the, the base that I was, the camp that I was at, we'll call it a base, it was a camp, um, was one of the northernmost camps in that, you know, in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, I mean, uh, Pakistan border. And uh, there's a way up there, it was high in the mountains. Um, in fact, uh, I, I remember that uh, our camp was about mm, roughly around 7,000 feet elevation. Um, we had OPs at around 9,000 elevation, foot elevation. Um, but the whole view, man, of the valley and the area that we were in was just super picturesque. All I can only way I can describe it is like a scene out of the movie, The Lord of the Rings, you know, it's really beautiful. Um, and some places were really, really nice uh, on foot patrols, just uh, especially in the springtime with the green lush valleys and the poppy fields and, you know, little running streams and the little, you know, the little um, little villages everywhere. It, it, it was really cool and very serene. And uh, sadly, you know, Afghanistan could be a great a great uh, tourist attraction, man, for people that like trekking and hiking, camping and all those types of things. It would be a great country for that. But, uh, man, you know, seriously, we couldn't even roll out the front gate without an armed platoon with us. But, you know, it's a dangerous place to be. But it was beautiful. And uh, so this particular camp that I was in um, and the way we were positioned geographically, we came under attack quite a bit particularly mortar attack. Um, and usually the mortar attacks came around 
0430 every morning. Why 0430 in the morning? Because that's when the sun comes up over there because they really don't, they don't observe daylight savings time. So 0430 sun was up, coming up. Also, that's when everybody went to prayer call, right? So they're on their feet, going to go pray and, and uh, lights are coming on. It was also a pretty good time to launch some mortars on the way to, you know, the local madrasa at your, your friendly neighborhood, you know, Ford operating base. So uh, you could pretty much expect on a pretty regular basis, a mortar attack. And <clears throat> this one particular morning was no different. I remember um, I kept my radio by my bed. Sure enough, the chatter comes over. We got incoming and, uh, you know, you can already hear the, you know, the uh, mortar rounds make an impact. And so I, at this particular, um, this particular encampment that we had, I was responsible for the mortar section. So I had a bunch of Afghans who were trained, uh, you know, to call for fire and, and also, uh, you know, run, you know, a mortar systems, run their guns. And, um, we had, uh, 120s, we had, uh, we had 120s, we had 80s and we had 60s. So. We were actually using a combination of American mortar tubes and Russian mortar tubes and um, American and some uh, Soviet uh, ammunition and other uh, other countries' ammunitions, as long as it would fit in there. And so we used a combination of those weapon systems. Now, so I remember this particular morning, I get the call, I run out to the mortar pit. My guys are already out there. They're already setting everything up. We got the whiz wheel out, they're plotting. We already know where the the, uh, the poo site is, what, who means point of origin, right? Um, basically, where did the where's the, the mortars coming from? And we knew where it was coming from because there was another. We had an OP above us about two thousand feet, and then on the back side of that OP, on the other side, um, there was a village down in a valley, and basically that's where all the attacks were emanating from. So the other problem we had was the OPs were coming under attack on a regular basis as well because they were right on top between the village and our camp and they were right on the top of the of the, uh, of the mountain. So they were actually an easy target. Sometimes they were targeted and the mortars would miss and go right over the backside of the mountain down and land on top of us. Um, they also brought snipers up. They would come up and shoot you know, some of our uh, soldiers on, in the OP. And we usually kept about a platoon of guys up there um, in this particular area. <clears throat> so they would pick them off. They would lob mortars at them. They would shoot them with sniper rifles, shoot RPGs at them. Were, you know, our guys were constantly under, under uh, pressure up, uh, above us. And so after having been there for a while, in fact, I ran this particular motor, motor section for uh, roughly 18 months and on and off. I would come in for a couple months, I would leave for a couple months and I'd come back. You know, but over the course of 18 months, that was my primary responsibility um, for you know, base defense, if you will. So I run out, I remember run out, we start sending, you know, we start sending the 120s. I love the 120s, those are some big mortar rounds. It looks like a porpoise, a dolphin flying through the air, that's how big they are. And uh, yeah, they're big, man. It is really cool to watch because you can see them fly. And uh, so we, you know, every morning it was the same scenario. Incoming and we would send them out, right? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then, you know, the sniper shot started and then uh, they had a couple of good, hits on us with the mortar rounds and I just kind of got a little fed up and um, decided you know what I'm going to stop I'm going to stop this right now so <clears throat> one day I took a patrol with me and we went up to the OP I briefed the uh, the commander at the OP what I wanted to do and essentially what I was going to do is put booby traps trip wire 
all around the areas where I thought these guys were sneaking in with RPGs and sniper rifles and uh, Ford observers and attacking the OP and us. And basically, I was just going to now deny them that terrain so they couldn't sneak up on them anymore. And so we continued our march, climbed up just a little bit higher, and um, I told the patrol to stay back because I didn't want them in the area where I was putting the uh, the booby traps in because the last thing you want is be laying booby traps in, and then you have one of your soldiers step on one behind you and it blows everybody up, right? It's, this was a one-man operation. So I sat them down, I went out, and... And, you know, I, I, was, I reconned the area and realized, okay, this is where they're coming in. I did about four different areas that they were using the, to sneak up onto this OP. And um, the area they were coming up from was literally almost a sheer cliff going straight down for about, I would say about an 8,000, 9,000 foot drop. It was very steep, very picturesque. It was kind of spooky, man. If you fell off the cliff, you, you're going to go for a free fall jump. And, uh, but they were working their way up. And one thing about Afghans, man, they're very, um, man, they're like goats, man. They're very good in steep terrain with flip-flops on, which is amazing, right? How easy and agilely they move through mountainous terrain. And so for them to get up that hill was, uh, was, you know, was no problem, man. They could do that all day long, right? Shoot up there. And plus they're not carrying anything but a, a weapon or an RPG. So what I did was, my plan was this. What I did is I took hand grenades um, and I would put the hand grenades in their in the original canisters that they were, the shipping tubes that they would come in. What I would do is I would tie the shipping tube off behind a tree, under a rock, uh, you know, on a tree limb. And then what I would do is I would pull the pin on the hand grenade, keeping the spoon depressed and wrap it up with uh, um, well, actually, I didn't wrap it up anything. I just wrapped the head up with a little bit of wire, and I slid the uh, grenade back inside of its tube, the shipping tube, right? So then I would string the wire across the path where the guy was, you know, most likely was going to walk through. Um, so if he walks through, he, he trips the wire, he pulls the wire, which would pull the hand grenade out of the tube, and then a spoon would pop, and then boom, it would go off. And sometimes I would set it up with two. I put one on one side and the other hand grenade on the other side. So I had two hand grenades with one wood trip wire in between them, right? So if you walk through that, and if you walk too fast, you pull both hand grenades out, they're probably going to wrap around your ankle. You're not going to get away from them, and boom, you're gone, right? So I have strung out all over the place, different light levels, different heights, different configurations. And uh, and I remembered where I put them right up. Okay, I kind of wrote it down. So I, you know, if I had to come back up, I knew where to go so I don't trip my own uh, my own <clears throat> tripwire. So anyways, um, that was done. And we went back down the hill. Okay, everybody orders, do not go walking around up there ever, okay, because of this reason. So everybody understood that. I believe it was the next day or two days later, <clears throat> I flew back to the States. I had to rotate out. And I was going to be gone for, I don't know, 30 to 45 days, taking a little bit of a break. And then uh, and then I came back. Now, I remember when I came back, I spoke to my counterpart, right, my cohort, um, who, by the way, is no longer with us. He was a, also a, a retired Green Beret and uh, one of the smartest, funniest guys I've ever met. Just a joy to be around. I mean, he was just a great guy, man. Um, and unfortunately, he committed suicide back at uh, Bragg when he returned up. Uh, took himself out man um which is a sad thing you know a lot of guys have some issues man and uh he had some we you know we didn't realize how bad it was but uh you know it, it was bad enough obviously so but when i came back he was you know he was there and 
I said, hey, man, I said, what's going on? Give me, you know, give me the in brief, you know, sit rep. And, uh, and he did. He told me, you know, what's the latest situation? What's been going on in the camp since I've been gone? Blah, blah, blah. And then I said, well, hey, what about my booby traps? How'd that work out? You know, did I get, did I get anybody? And I remember he's like, oh, yeah, that. Um, well, he goes, well, you got a goat. Goat walked through one of them. And, uh, and you got a 13-year-old kid. Well, we may have a 13 year old kid. He goes, Yeah. So, what happened was, um, because everybody knew that, you know, you know, the, 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 the uh, OP was always getting attacked, it was getting rocketed and bombed, and there was a lot of gunfire. The Afghans like to collect spent ordnance brass and things like that, right? They like to salvage yeah. the metals metal. to make some money. And um, so, this on this particular day, this father sent one of his kids up there, his 13 year old boy up there, um, you know, go collect brass, bring it back. So he did, he went up there and what did he do? He walked through one of my booby traps and killed him. And uh, <clears throat> now who would have seen that coming, right? Um, normally there's nobody up there at that altitude except the bad guys and the good guys. Little we expect some dude walking around on that terrain, particularly that terrain, um, no, never saw that coming. Well, they found the kid's body, which was really unusual. They found his body in the dump down by our camp, garbage dump. For whatever reason, somebody laid his body there. And we, we haven't been able to figure that out yet. But we got the story what happened. Not only did that happen, but um, the father then sent the second boy up there, the younger one, to go get more after he already lost the first one. And... Um, the second one didn't get killed, but he did get injured, right? And so, you know, we had to put the word out to all the Afghans, you are not ever to come up this mountain, anywhere near this mountain, you know, just not going to have it. So I was left with a dilemma. And the dilemma was, man, do I leave them up there, the IDs, I mean, the booby traps, or do, you know, I recover them? And so, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a moral issue for me, right? Um, many levels and uh, on one hand I felt like I was trying to save and protect our soldiers up there who also had families and kids and us you know in our camp and then on the other hand I'm like man you know would there have been a better way you know just something I could have done different you know and you know I tried to rationalize it and finally what I just decided was you know what let's just Let's just go take those booby traps down um, and be done with it. So I, I took the patrol. We went back up there, and I remember. Now it's been a little while since I've been up there, and I was like, okay, let me remember where the hell these things are, because everything looked a little different. All the trees looked different. In fact, there were trees were knocked down, they're broken up. And I asked, I said, "What? Did something happen up here?" And they said, "Yeah, actually, what happened was." Um, a 155 battery, Americans, you know, several kilometers away, were firing 155 out in front of the FOB, or uh, sorry, the observation post, into that area where I had laid those booby traps. And uh, and the reason why is because the the um, the OP was under was under siege, so they were calling for you know fire support, and then 155s came in and just leveled the place, and so. As I walk into this area, it's a lightly wooded area, a lot of scrub oak type stuff. And, uh, you know, there were some trees there, maybe 20 feet tall. 
nothing looked the same because the limbs were broken, trees were broken, uh, just from the beating they took from the 155. And now I wasn't sure where were the booby traps. And then when I did find some that had not been triggered yet, they were literally like hanging by a hair nail. Just, they were ready to just, they just needed one, they needed a bird to fart and, <laughs> and it would have blew up. And it was that, it was just that precarious, right? I'm like, holy smokes. And I'm tiptoeing around there, praying to God I don't slip and fall and slide through one of my booby traps, you know, going down the hill or, you know, knock one out of a tree on my head or, you know, anything. <clears throat> so as I was able to find them one by one, since I had already pulled the pins on them, um, I decided just to go ahead and get rid of them. So I was pulling the hand grenades out and just throwing them down the side of the mountain right over the other edge towards the enemy and let it blow up down there. Um, finally, I cleared the area, and then, you know, we went back, and, and uh, I called it a day. So, you know, I had a, you know that was a, a moment where, you know, you, you really got to it, – it had a profound impact on you for many reasons, right? So as a father, you know, all I could think about were my own kids. And, you know, what if that happened, happened to my son? And, and then I thought, man, you know, this is – this is war and war there's a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of a lot of things that you just uh you just can't control you can't anticipate that just happen you know and and you, you do the best you can you do the best you can for your your fellow soldiers um in essence you're really doing the best you can not only for your soldiers but their families and your families you know it's there's a bigger picture here and uh and so <clears throat> You know, when that happened, you know, I thought about, I was like, man, you know, this kid was 13 years old, you know, and he's just trying to, he's just trying to find some, some money for his family, right, to feed them, and it cost him his life. And do I blame myself for it? Not really so much as I blame the Taliban for it. Had they not come up there and did that shit, I wouldn't have had to go out and put the booby traps out there, right? Um, so they, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the... Uh, uh, the responsibility lays at their feet because if I didn't do it, we'd have lost more soldiers up there. We would have, you know, kids would have lost their fathers and wives would have lost their husbands. So it was a, kind of a, one of those moral things I had to really mull over for a while and uh, really wasn't sure of the answer. And I figured since I'm really not sure what's the right answer, um, let me just take them down. And if I come up with the right answer and realize that it was the right thing to do to leave them up. Then I'll go put them back up. Yeah. So anyways, I took them down I never put them back up. Um, but it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those things that happen in war and combat. And, yeah. uh, unfortunately people, even innocent people get killed in them. Yeah. Um, it's like what, I mean, if, if, if you hadn't have done that, then <clears throat> you might be sitting here telling a story about how your buddy died because you were you got soft and decided not to put out booby traps and then you know does your buddy die and, and some kid back here grows up without a dad i mean it's it's kind of damned if you do damned if you don't like there's no like it there's no really no there's no answer that everyone wins on so at the like at the end of the day you kind of just have to be like why am i here what is my job you did your job and like that's a it's a shitty thing that like that kid died but if if you didn't do it i mean you know if we didn't nuke hiroshima what do we lose a million soldiers or do we nuke three hundred thousand men women and children it's like i mean it's war it's hell there's no no one walks home and goes there's the good answer it's 
It's war. Yeah, I was actually telling a couple tonight um, here at the resort. You know, actually, it's the first time I met them. Um, they were Canadians, and uh, they were asking me some questions, and, and they were talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's a rumor of war out there, and everybody believes that at least the people I'm starting to talk to that the Chinese are coming um, and they think we're on the verge of another war and it's going to be with the Chinese. Now, I've been saying this for a while. Um, you know, I fully believe that that, that day is coming. Mm-hmm. And why is that coming? Because, you know, the COVID, man, provided really good top cover for the Chinese, right, to go out and start building these artificial islands, um, all these incursions that they're, they're doing, even into India, um, there's a lot of other things going on that I won't talk about on, on open source that I'm aware of, but, uh, um, there's just, a, you know, even here in Indonesia, they're talking about, and it's on the news, man, they're starting to find, uh, Chinese drone submarines, right. That are, you know, whatever, uh, failing, you know, or running up on, on the beaches here in Indonesia. So we know the drone submarines are out here doing, you know, the, whatever you call it, geo navigation and geo, you know charts for you know mapping things like that so i don't even know if you call it geo mapping because mm-hmm. it's underwater mm-hmm. um <laughs> whatever it is they're doing it underwater right so what are they looking for probably like submarine routes and things like that but they're actively you know doing this kind of stuff is that new no but uh between that and the you know and the buildup of the islands um you know a lot of the saber rattling and then uh the other thing that's going on that people are probably not aware of it is the Chinese are actively dredging the ocean bottom around Taiwan, right? Um, they're literally sending, you know, hundreds of thousands of barges there all year round, and all they're doing is dredging up all the sand from the ocean floor, and they're carrying it off to build their their new islands somewhere else, right? But what it's doing is destroying the the uh, coral reefs of, of Taiwan, which affects what fishing. Um, you know, that's obviously one of the Taiwan staples is is fishing and uh so essentially what the chinese are doing is trying to cut off some of their they cut their food chain in half or cut it off altogether so these are things that you know from an from an intelligence perspective and i do have a background in uh in intelligence um these are in what do we call intel indicators and uh you know and when you put them all together they start to paint a picture of something uh, more ominous and so you know, the question is, oh, wow, why would they come to, you know, for example, why would the Chinese come to Indonesia? Well, for the same reason they would go to Australia, because they want to control this the, the Eastern Bloc of the world. Not only that, all the shipping lanes and all the you control, all the resources, you know, and the shiny things that are here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a real possibility, especially right now when I feel America is flat on his ass um, with what happened with COVID, you know, the, um, you know, basically we, we've taken, we've taken focus off of a potential war and we, we put a lot of focus on this war against the virus, right? This invisible enemy, which is retarded, um, you know, but nonetheless, you know, everything has kind of come slow down. I even saw an article maybe three days ago that came out and I can't remember the source of it, but essentially, 
what it asserted was that even the U.S. government is afraid that uh, they're not prepared to uh, take on the Chinese, especially in, in any type of a maritime battle, which is going to be more just a maritime battle, an air battle. It's going to be a ground war. Um, and I can see World War II, um, you know, World War II 10X happening oh. here in this part of the world, right? So, um, you know, it, I, I, I believe it's going to happen. I think a lot of people are starting to believe that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, but a lot of people don't understand what the consequences are. And um, so we had this conversation tonight about that. I was like, you know, well, you know, we should be okay, right? Everybody should be okay. I mean, what Chinese are not going to do nothing to us, right? They're just going to come here and do what? So, well, they're going to come here and do all kinds of things. Like, for example, they're going to install a shadow government or a complete new government, not only in Jakarta, but every province, you know, including Bali. They're going to go down to the governor's office, go, you're out, we're in. And, it, and that's how these things start. And they go, well, what up? They're not going to kill us people. I go, no, because you're useful idiots. They want to keep you all alive because they need you to do things like, you know, keep Labor. keep the economy moving, keep food moving and water moving and gas moving you know um i said but it's not going to be you know disney world either um there's a process where you know just think you know nazi germany um you know neighbor against neighbor everybody's ratting each other out everybody's trying to stay alive and they'll do what they got to do i said so this is a slippery slope and um and I always tell people, you know, the only reason Australians aren't speaking Japanese today is because in World War II, the Battle of Midway, had we not luckily, um, you know, intercepted the Chinese or the Japanese at that point at, in, at Midway and stopped them, um, this whole part of the world would probably look a lot different. So um, here we are again. Chinese are in the same area and they have the opportunity to do it to do it again um, and do it better. So anyways, um, I kind of went off a little bit no, tangent no, there. No, not at all. It's it's that's a what but I don't think what people understand and not that I understand again I'm a 30-year-old with a biology degree. But man, where we are now is we haven't had a world war since August 9th, 1945. We've had a lot of conflicts, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Desert well, Storm. Um, I would argue we are in a world war. It's just that the battlefield looks different, and uh, the weapons hasn't gone kinetic. Well, well, right? well. The point out the point. Yeah, sure. Cyber attacks, bio warfare, economic warfare, drug warfare. It's absolutely what's going on. But what we have, what, what I was getting at though, is we've had things like Vietnam or Korea, where like, sure, we send over, you know, a, a force from hell. But unlike that, there hasn't been total war since August 9th, 1945. Total war is when you don't hold any punches. Well, now all it's going to take is China's going to overwhelm us in one theater or we're going to overwhelm China. They're not going to want to lose. So they're going to pull out like a five kiloton tactical nuke. The second a tactical nuke goes off, we start using tactical nukes. It's only a matter of minutes, if not hours, or hours, if not minutes, to where they go. They're using tactical, send in the big thermonuclears from orbit. Bam, 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 bam. In 12 hours, we're back in 50,000 BC. Yeah, that's, no, that's I, where I, it's going to go. Think, yeah, you're right. And so, for example, the you know the questions that were posed tonight uh, from my friends which are very smart people, um, they were like, well, the Americans are going to come here and they'll stop it, right? I mean, they're going to be right here, right here, no problem, you know? And and uh, they, didn't, they couldn't understand how these things escalate and how they're already escalating insidiously, right? Uh, it's that's why I said it's already begun. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, it, because you haven't heard a gunshot yet doesn't mean it hasn't already started. Um, and when the gunshots, when you do start hearing the gunshots, 
um, it's way too, too late. late. We're, you know, it, we're way we're way down that road at that point, right? So I, I again, I'm gonna. This is my world view, but um, I can see it starting with a naval battle, air battle, and eventually it's going to be a ground war. Where it's going to be a ground war, most likely in uh, you know in this region on the you know between the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia. India. Um, man, you know Indonesia alone. Indonesia alone has over 17,000, upwards to 25,000 islands in the archipelago. Think about that for a minute. Um, that's a lot of terrain. Oh, granted, now some of these islands are maybe like, you know, three feet by three feet across, but they're still an island, right? So, uh, um, and so there's a lot of terrain here. This is all subtropical terrain. This is not going to be another fight in Afghanistan or Iraq. This is going to be jungle warfare. Um, and, and not only is it going to be jungle warfare, but it's going to be jungle warfare and guerrilla warfare. Um, it's going to be, it's going to, the, the days of conventional warfare where two armies face off and they charge and then, you know, when the dust shuttles, somebody whiz are over, man. Today, it's just, it's going to be Iraq, Afghanistan, um, you know, 10X, with IEDs, you know, and and all the unconventional stuff, and we're not going to be able to go in and say we might be able to start this war as, an uncon- uh, as a conventional war, but it's going to end as an unconventional war. And the and the the thing that's going to make the difference, the discriminator at the end, is going to be a man with a gun on the battlefield every time. It's always going to come to that. And um, when does that day come? may never come or it may come in like you said we're going to go back to 50,000 you know BC um, and we're going to be standing not with a gun but with a club mm-hmm. um, in our bare feet you know our, well we might not even have any animals left to skin and wear <laughs> yeah. um, anyways it's going to be a um, <clears throat> yeah. there's a I'll, I'll post the I'll send it to you as well Dale you might actually like it but there's a BBC video that it, it, it's it's obviously fake but someone put it together a couple of years ago and it's what would a modern conflict look like and it starts with like breaking news like Russian warship has incurred into you know whatever waters and it starts with posturing and then you have all these like you know these these conferences from the White House and from you know in uh, London and you, you know all the prime ministers around the world and then it starts with like we're scrambling bombers and it you see how it's within about four hours it starts with like russian incursion to like a you know like missile destroyers firing at each other to it very quickly goes to finally they launch like a tactical nuke at beale air force base so we nuke moscow and it goes from tactical to larger to multiple independent re-entry vehicle thermonuclear and eventually the the show ends because you're watching a news thing the whole time and it shuts off with this is the emergency broadcast system your city has been targeted with a thermonuclear warhead please stack water and food inside a shelter put blankets over the and then it just it just ends and that's how but it shows it it would be like four to six hours from the first shot to it's game over but on the positive note is we did stay in a cold war with Russia or Soviet Union for what 40 what first nuke they built was Joe one was 1949 cold war ended what 91 we did do 42 years without doing that so that's maybe the upside I don't know well you gotta so there's a lot of things to think about that for a minute um I hope you're right, but you know we're not fighting the same enemy, right? Yeah. So we got to look at 
there's cultural aspects of this thing. It's you know different different belief systems and different priorities. Um, you know, and I don't want to get all into this whole Chinese thing, but uh, you know, we might not get lucky twice. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think anybody wants to destroy themselves in their race, um, but when you don't have nothing left to lose, hope, you know, whatever, right? So there is no winner. There will never be a winner in nuclear weapons in a nuclear war. <clears throat> Everybody's going to lose, man. You either lose now or you lose later, but eventually you're going to lose, man. It's going to be devastating. And um, I would like to think that, you know, men are a little bit more compassionate, more reasonable and sensible than that, that they wouldn't take it to that level. But then again, you know, I've seen men do some really yeah. – Genius, yeah, you know, evil things to each other, man. And it's like, you know, there is no limit to our madness. Yeah. So, I, um, I think the limit is, is is mutual assured destruction, and that it's not it's not hoping that the other side is compassion. It's that them realizing it's suicide. It's what Reagan said. Um, you know, the Soviets, will, the communists, will stop at nothing for power. But there's nothing that they would do that would – there's no cost that they think – there's nothing they would do where they can justify the cost of losing Moscow. Like, yeah. I just don't care. Yeah. Um, well, anyways, yeah. Pretty <laughs> yeah, interesting night here as well having these conversations. Yeah. But uh, I've had quite a few of them with lots of different people. And that seems to be a consensus, um, you know, which is even more amazing is, you know – these are complete strangers I'm talking to that have come out and they're all like they're actually scared of where we are today especially with the new administration um, nobody had anything positive to say about it um, which was really amazing um, <laughs> everybody that I've ever come across so far even on the left is in disbelief what's going on and uh they believe there's there's a lot more something much more ominous at play here mm-hmm. and uh, that's the scary part nobody knows what it is and how it's going to work out but um sorry so <laughs> moving on man so the next one i want to talk about is the siege in barja Matal. so so what happened on this particular event um <clears throat> The location I was at again, I was uh, way north. The same, in fact, the same, um, the same base I described in the in the earlier chapter, way up there. And uh, there were there was actually a couple of there was three platoons or three companies. I'm sorry, three companies uh, in three different um, what they called um, uh, cops, right? Which were basically combat outposts, and they were strategically um, spread out up on the, on the northern part of Afghanistan, running uh, west to east. And and essentially, they were put there to, uh, in, the, in the middle of Indian country, to disrupt it, okay, to, to manage, you know, the MSRs, the main supply routes, and, and, uh, and all the activities up there. Well, if you can just imagine, so these, these camps were sitting in very mountainous terrain, that had a lot of forest, more than you, I, you know, was used to seeing in Afghanistan. It was actually quite warm up there, um, kind of humid. And at night, I almost felt like I was in the jungles of Panama, which was really kind of interesting. Um, but it wasn't. And so 
what happened was there were a couple of incidents. First incident that happened was there was a cop, uh, not a cop, yeah, a cop was what we call it, right? Combat outpost came under siege, heavy siege, and I believe they lost nine American soldiers. Um, they almost basically what they did is they ended up calling close air support on themselves because the enemy, with the Taliban, were in, were. were within the wire itself. Um, it was a really bad firefight. I think it's the most casualties we took at one time in the entire time we were fighting in Afghanistan in, in this type of a combat, uh, combat uh, operation. So uh, when that happened, after that happened, the decision was made to pull out these other two, the remaining two, t- uh, two cops. Now, we got a call one day saying, hey, we would like for you guys to come up and bring your Afghans and pull security for us so that we can pack our stuff and lift it out there. Now, these cops were, this particular cop we were going to go to was, if I had to describe it, just imagine the bottom of a valley. um, And the compound itself was probably 150 by 150 meters square. Very small, had HESCOs around it. And they had a small helo pad in the middle that was probably about, uh, I don't know, 50, maybe 20 meters by 20 meters. Very small, enough to support one helicopter, and that was it. And um, so the problem was these guys were constantly in a tick. Every day there were troops in contact. They were getting they were getting fired at from, you know, from the high ground, um, so much so that these guys could never even leave the wire and go out and run combat patrols. They'd never left the wire because they were constantly inside the wire shooting outward, right? So there's a problem for them. Getting helicopters to come in to resupply them, deliver food, and even to get them out of there was problematic. And so, but they had to leave. And they lived in some pretty austere conditions, man. This was probably the most austere I've seen in Afghanistan. It was it was something like you might see in, in Vietnam, man. These guys had little makeshift hooches out of plywood and ponchos and camouflage nets. You know, they didn't have Wi-Fi. They had nothing out there, man. They didn't have television, um, nothing. I mean, it was, and they were there for a year. And I'm like, holy hell, living in field condition like that for a year, it was pretty rough. Um, they had their outposts up there. Um, what I did like was they had um, their, uh, what do you call them, uh, remote-fired machine guns. Uh, they had a few of those positioned around there, which was pretty cool to see. But uh, um, they were it was Fort Apache. It was Fort Apache. They couldn't get out. They couldn't do anything. And they needed our help to pull security outside the wire so they could start packing their suitcases, packing whatever they can grab, putting them in helicopters, and uh, and get out. Now, this was going to take a couple days for them to do that. It wasn't like, oh, we just need a couple hours um, to throw all our stuff in the trunk of the car. No, they had a lot of stuff to do. And some stuff was going to get left behind and get destroyed in place. Like, you know, they had a couple Humvees, um, you know, some of the other stuff that's just too big to to carry out. So the mission was going to be, all right, we're going to fly in uh, with a platoon of our guys, Afghans. We're going to land in the middle of the night uh, under darkness. We're going to link up with the company commander. We're going to get the... uh, you know, the op order. Um, and then uh, basically what we we're going to do is leave the wire and we were going to patrol the area and just go out hunting for bad guys and, and uh, you know, run them off, hopefully, if we didn't kill them. While we were doing that, they were going to bring in other helicopters and they were going to start loading them up, you know, with with gear and everything they need to get out of there, right? So um, this was going to go on for about three days. So 
So anyways, that was the plan. That night, we fly in. We land around uh, about 10 p.m., pitch black. We had a CH-47. We sit down, get out, um, get the get our troops organized, and, uh, you know, to have them do what we call the rucksack flop, right? We basically they just sit on the rucksacks and they wait. I went up and I got the briefing from uh, the captain along with uh, my other two cohorts that were with me, two other Americans. And uh, so we got a lay of the land. What's going on? What's the enemy situation? Okay, what's the friendly situation? Got it. All right. And uh, once we understood the plan, uh, I mean, we decided, okay, it's time to execute. So <clears throat> we probably left the wire around, I don't know, 1 a.m. And the first mission we were going to do was go up the road a ways about uh, three kilometers there was a school up there madrasa and it was believed that uh, the taliban were using that madrasa to stage out of to come down and conduct attacks so we figured okay well they don't know we're here so we're just going to go up there and then sneak up on them in the madrasa and wipe them out so that was the plan if they're not there we're going to continue to march um, further north, about another two, three kilometers of the village up there. And then we would just go in there and, you know, work it out. So we leave the wire. We start walking. Um, it's pitch black. And probably about 20 minutes, 30 minutes into the, the walk, we're actually walking up a road. Um, but it's really dark. But we're walking up a road about 20, 30 minutes away. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose at the camp behind us, our camp. And... What happened was another CH-47 was coming in to land, and as it was starting to land, there was a bad guy, a Taliban, outside the wire with an RPG, and he launched a, a round through the bottom of the helicopter. And uh, he took out one of the crew chiefs in the, in the helicopter. Of course, they crash-landed into the compound. Uh, it did land on the HLZ, but it, you know, it was a controlled crash is what it was. Um, so now we got a CH-47 that's, you know, tits up sitting on the only HLZ that we have <laughs> and and you know it is down and now we're gonna do so it didn't stop there so that erupted into a big firefight right so now you know and we're watching tracers coming from all the high ground down into the compound compound tracers coming out you know all hell broke loose and so we're now standing and going okay now what do we do did we go back and then we thought well if we go back um we're probably gonna, you know, we're probably gonna make contact with our own guys in the wire, you know, and it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be a three-way ambush is what it's gonna turn into, right? So um, we decided that we'll probably just make matters worse if we try to go back and and try to fill, you know, try to make some, uh, you know, re-support, re, uh, reinforce the, the compound. And we were better off staying on the outside, so we're now, you know, walking around, you know, the perimeter in the woods and the hills, you know, and bumping into these guys that, that will have the jump on us, right? So we said, okay, we came here, we got a mission. Um, we made it, we've made it to the madrasa, nobody's there. Let's push on to the next village up the road. So we head up the rest of the village. The firefight's still going on behind us. Um, we figured that they can sort it out while we go take care of some other stuff. So we get up to this one village and uh, we're crossing the bridge and then we get into it. And it was, you always know when it, it's a village of bad guys. Uh, or when they're there because everybody it gets real quiet they all go inside their homes they close the doors and the windows they turn out the lights and it just gets eerily quiet and um, so you know they're there and we had we got intel reporting that a bunch of guys squirted out on the back end of the town right when we say squirters we're talking bad guys we're, we're, we're booking it up getting, getting out of Dodge so um so nothing happened right so they got away we didn't have a contact out there we brought it back in 
Um, got back into the camp early morning, assessed all the damage, and then realized, okay, we got a problem with this helicopter sitting here that we can't get out. So the next plan was um, we're going to continue to go out and do our job while they sort out this issue with the helicopter and trying to get everybody out. <clears throat> so we go out again. The next plan is we're going to go this time to the, I believe it was to the south, southwest. And um, if I remember right, there was another village about four kilometers away that we also, you know, Intel said this is where bad guys are coming out of as well. And so we knew that they had to travel a certain line uh, on the terrain to get to the camp. They're basically going to have to traverse some ridge lines and, uh, you know, and come around the side of a mountain to the high ground to, to come down and, and do their damage. So what we did was we went out and basically we went up to set up an ambush. And now the terrain was pretty tricky to walk in because it was steep. It was actually kind of wet. Um, it was pitch black and we're doing this under night vision goggles and the trail that we were working on i remember was probably 18 inches wide max it was a goat trail and it was muddy and slippery yeah and we're on the high ground traversing this thing right with night vision goggles on you know it's it's wooded and uh, it's very precarious and so we're walking along and then we're up there pretty good and pretty good, pretty high up. And, you know, it's a little nerve wracking because if you slip, you're probably going to fall about 200 meters at least into a, into a, a riverbed full of rocks. So a few minutes later, I hear, I hear this noise, you know, and then basically I had an interpreter, an Afghan interpreter behind me. His name, we call him HD. HD was for Harley Davidson because he loved Harley Davidson motorcycles, right? Even though he didn't have one, you know, they don't have them in Afghanistan. That was his fantasy. I want a Harley Davidson one day. So he was, he was HD and he was a good dude. And so he was my interpreter. He was behind me and he slipped and fell over the cliff. <laughs> and I heard him going down the side. And I, oh shit. So I turned around and I ran over to the cliff and I'm looking down and I could see him laying down there. And, uh, and all I remember seeing was with my night vision goggles on, I saw all this black stuff coming out of his mouth, right? And his nose. And actually the black stuff was blood, but at night with night vision goggles on, everything looks like green, different, you know, shades of green. And this was black. So that told me, okay, that's blood, lots of it. And, uh, and now I heard him say was Mr. Dale. I've fallen. I've fallen, Mr. Dale. I mean, yeah, no shit. <laughs> so, and, uh, I said, all right. I said, all right. I said, relax. Just chill out for a second. We're going to get you up out of there, right? And, and he got up and, you know, he's dusting himself off and he's a little wobbly. And so um, I think we lowered a couple of, uh, like, sling ropes down and we managed to finally get him up. And I look at him and his, his, um, his tooth his bottom teeth went through the bottom of his lip, right? And they were coming out the other side. And, uh, and you know, he busted himself up pretty good, blood all over his nose and shit, you know? And, and he's kind of like a little shook up. And then I had a, we had another medic with us. He was actually a SEAL. Um, so I bring him back and he takes a quick look at him with red filter flashlights. Like, yeah, shit, okay, well, you know, you're not gonna die, but you know, you're, 
<laughs> you don't look real good tonight either, so but you'll be okay. So we fixed him up, patched him up, and then um, and I said, I said, HD man, I said, you know, gotta be careful, bro. And he's like, well, yes, Mister Dill, but you know, tonight was the first night I ever walked with night vision goggles on. So I go, what, what, what? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the first night I ever walked with night vision goggles on, right? And I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> I said, you're telling me tonight, you the first time you ever wore NVGs, and we're going on a combat op, and we're walking the, on the edge of a ravine. Yeah, yes, Mr. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Dude, man, I said, it's, you know, kind of information that's good to know before we go out, because, <laughs> you know, you get hurt, and then now we got a, we got a casual problem, with a Kazavak problem, right? How do we get to evacuate a casualty out of here, especially on the side of a mountain like this? We're going to either have to carry you out, because we're not going to be able to get a helicopter in. And uh, just imagine carrying his ass out on the same little slick goat trail, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those lessons. Uh, it wasn't a lesson learned for me. It was a lesson learned for him. But it was just a reminder that, you know, um, all it takes is one stupid mistake, man. Um, you know, overlooking something like a guy not trained and wearing night vision goggles could have really ended the whole mission, right? Could have been disastrous for it. And who knows? how that could have, you know, it had a domino effect. It could have, you know, other things could have happened as a result of that, right? So actually something did happen because of the result of that. So so now we're like, all right, I lay him down on the side of the, the trail there, prop him up, you know, he's we're licking his wounds and stuff and uh, just tell him to take a breather for a minute. And then I go up and I'm coordinating with uh, another guy, another American, and... Uh, while everybody was sitting on the trail waiting for us to take, you know, provide medical attention to this guy, they were just kind of sitting there. And one of the guys noticed on his night vision goggles across from us, about maybe 200 meters across from us uh, on the opposing ridge line on the other mountain, he saw a light, it looked like a campfire. And uh, the closer he looked, the longer we looked at it, started inspecting. And it was kind of difficult because there's trees, right? So we're like looking through trees and stuff too, trying to see these guys. But what it turned out to be, it turned out to be 12 Taliban sitting around a campfire with their AK-47s. And basically what they were doing is using um, that that spot right there is for their ORP, is what we call it, objective rallying point, meaning from there, they're getting their, you know, they're getting grooved up. They're getting their weapons ready. They're going to drink their chai or whatever the hell they're going to do before they go around the corner and start fighting with the Americans. Um, so this was a staging point for them. And they just happened to be sitting there burning the fire, you know, and chilling out, you know. Were they going to attack that night? I don't know if they were or not, but they were there. Um, and it was obvious that that's what they were using as their ORP. So we're like, shit, we don't even have to march to the village to kill them. Uh, they're right here in front of us, right across the street. <laughs> and uh, and so um, so what we decided to do is we got on the radio and we called, uh, you know, basically called for close air support, emergency, ECAS, emergency close air support. And, uh, and it turns out that uh, there was actually an F-15 in the area, one F-15 in the area. And uh, flying around, he's flying patrol. I don't know what he's doing, but he was in AO. He answered our call. He goes, yeah, um, I'm in the AO. I got, you know, I have uh, weapons on board and uh, got nothing else to do. What you need, boss? So um, we said, well, here's the dis- here's what we got, right? We we actually had uh, used the lasers and everything we had, the range finders, um, and pointed out where these guys were. He locked in on them with his systems um, in the aircraft, which was really amazing because we never once heard the airplane. He was so far up and so far out, Jeez. you can't hear him. But with his with his technology on board, right, um, 
his night vision capability, everything, he could actually see the Taliban. He's the guy that reported to us. He goes, this is what I see. He goes, I see 12 oh, Taliban, guns, barbecuing, right? And so, um, and, and, and like, awesome. Right? He goes, what do you want me to do? We're like, well, we want you to take him out. So what we did is we lazed him. Um, and he dropped, he dropped the JDAM on him, right? Um, so I remember when he said, you know, basically, you know, bombs away, 45 seconds. He was 45 seconds out, man. Um, and we never heard the aircraft, but we kept the laser on on them, right? Because he, we got yeah. this, this thousand pounder. And uh, <laughs> we're all sitting there watching our nods and stuff. And then, boom, that thing hit. I mean, dead center. I mean, right into the campfire. Uh, yeah, it was that accurate. And all you see is little pieces and parts of people and stuff flying through the air, right? That night. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> and he recorded all of that on his, uh, on his, uh, on his platform as well. Yeah. And he actually sent us the, uh, uh, the video the next day, you know, from his view. And, uh, it was pretty gnarly, man. It was really cool to see that. That's, um, that's so insane. Right? <laughs> 45 <laughs> seconds. Jesus. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that happened a lot of times. That's usually how it works, yeah. man. I, I called in air. Well, I didn't call in. We called an airstrike in uh, in Iraq one time. Six uh, F-15s, and uh, same thing. They were forty-five seconds out. We never heard the birds ever. And uh, man, they dropped those bombs and they just came raining down. It's like you never heard the aircraft. That's how far out they were. Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, to, to, you know, to know that we had that capability. So, anyways, uh, well, now mission accomplished. You know, we got twelve bagged him and uh, we went home and I went back to the compound and then uh, I remember I was tired as hell man and we're sleeping on the floor it was just bad you know just shitty conditions there but um, wasn't there for you know it wasn't a resort and we weren't there for vacation we were there to do a job so um, what they ended up doing so the next day they they flew in I didn't know this this capability existed so I believe this was a TF 160th aircraft as well, um, CH 47. And the Army has pilots, and they're told these pilots, their job is to go in and fly damaged aircraft, right? So they actually brought in a CH 47 pilot. They lowered him, um, you know, basically lowered him down into the, uh, into the camp, uh, stable rig. And then his job was to get in that CH-47, push buttons, pull levers, stand on the gas, and try to make the suit fly away safely. And uh, I remember when he did it, right, we're sitting there, and uh, while that was happening, they had fast movers come in, fighter jets, and they were just flying low and fast, man, through the valleys just to keep the Taliban down. The OPs were engaging. Um, there was a lot of noise, man, being made so that this guy could fly the helicopter out. And, uh, man, I swear, it was almost like he jumped in. He did his inspection. He jumped in the seat and without any hesitation just started turning dials and, and, and got the seat flying. I mean, as fast as he could start it and get in the air is what he did, man. He didn't waste no time. And uh, we were all just kind of standing and going, okay, is it going to fly or is it going to crash? And uh, he managed to fly it out of there. He managed to get that thing limping out of there by himself, you know, and, and took it away and cleared the uh, cleared the, the uh, HLZ for us. Um, so then what happens is another group of 12 Taliban in daylight 
probably from the same uh, ORP that we blew up the night before, come around for some revenge, right, some payback. And uh, they were in depth smack into an OP position that was sitting on the on the, on the the ridgeline. And uh, they wiped their ass out, man. Freaking young privates with a bunch of machine guns just had a heyday and took out 12 more just like that. So it was a good it was a good night and a good day, man. We took out at least 24 that we know of. Um, just now, little bit of time, and got everybody else loaded up on the birds, and and uh, called it a day. Close the, you know, close the door on the camp, and we left. And uh, mission accomplished. So that was an interesting mission. Um, many, uh, you know, around, you know, just for many reasons, man. Alone, you know, just the whole. When I look back at that, it was one of the more memorable times because the the terrain was so different. The conditions were so different. The conditions that the soldiers were operating in were so different. Um, you know, the the threat was so high and so constant. I mean, it's like every day, man, these guys were like fish in a bowl, man, just getting hammered down there, right? And uh, for a year, this was like, I'm not going to say it was Quezon. It wasn't Quezon, mm-hmm. but it was a mini Quezon, man. It's like, wow, you know, and uh, how do you guys even get any sleep here? You know, it was, it was nuts. Um but, um, you know, we got it done and got them out and, we, you know, felt good about what we did and, uh, and we went back and went home. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was another one of my, one of my ops up there. And, um, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, it, it was a success. We got the boys out. Um, did the Taliban win? No, not really. They lost at least 24 dudes. Yeah. We had to leave the area, but, uh, um, it was tough terrain to fight in, you know, and I, I wonder about that sometimes too, you know. So tonight we also, again, we, my my friends and people that we met tonight, we're talking about women in the military, you know. Again, I know this is one of those controversial things, you know, and, you know, and look, it's not about bashing women or nothing like that. It's just about being realistic, you know, and I think about times like that, you know, those conditions, man, you know, is that something that, you know, we would want to put a woman into and could a woman endure that for a year? I mean, it was like, listen, you know, you got to go take a piss. You put you piss in a PVC pipe tube out in the open where everybody gets to watch it. You know, um, you know, that's just how it is, man. There's no, you know, everybody gets their own little quarters and mm-hmm. no, man, it's just everybody racking out in one little spot, you know, sleeping butt to nut, you know, um, you know, that's how it is, you know, and I wonder, man, you know, if we have women in those kind of situations, how's that going to, how is that going to bear out and what kind of trouble is that going to cause? What mm-hmm. kind of problems are going to cause? Because one of the things I was really impressed with, with these guys is because they had been there so long um, in this area by themselves fighting these bad guys. You could tell they were like family, man. They were like brothers, you know, and uh, they had to be, you know, they mm-hmm. lived with each other for a year under some high stress, um, austere, shitty conditions, shitty chow, you know, sucking it up. They don't have internet, you know, they didn't have none of that crap. You know, they got letters from home, you know, whenever it would come in. Um, you know, and, and so that was pretty raw for me. And I personally like it, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but you know, to me, that just appeals mm-hmm. to me, you know, so to speak, to embrace the suck. Yeah. And, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I think I would have enjoyed that. Yeah. It would have sucked, but I think I would have enjoyed it, you know? Um, well, it's real. and I, I really appreciated just the fact that I got to go there for that short amount of time and go out and patrol in that area, you know, 
and do something in support of those guys to get them out of there, you know, and go out there and take it to the bad guys. That was, uh, that was fun. That was, a, that was a blast. Well, it's, it's, it makes sense that you, that you like it because it, it's real. It's right. It's, you know, it's, uh, like in, in the South, like going to college in the South and you pledge up a fraternity and, you know, you're a pledge for three months and it's just, they just abuse you. They just use you for, you got to go on, you know, you got to drive them around when they're drunk, got to go get them girls and everything. But they always say it's the, it's the best time you never want to have again. And it's because it yeah. sucks. But man, if I'm not still friends with all those guys, if I don't still talk to them almost every day, 12 years later, it's because it's like when everything kind of just seems, you know, when... There's no struggle. You can just go get food from the refrigerator. There's no one trying to kill you. Man, sometimes struggle, even if artificial in my case, there is like a, a beauty to it. You bond together and you have this common goal to fight. And I can only imagine that's dialed up a thousand fold when it is real and you're in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban. Yeah. And probably because of that, you know, when you do lose your guy or guys, yeah. like that one camp lost eight, nine guys total. I think minimum eight and then another one later. But, uh, you know, when you're in, the, you lose that many guys that close, all of a sudden it's like, hey, where's first squad net? Oh, yeah, they're gone. You're freaking out forever, you know? Yeah. That's a pr- pretty, you know, that's a pretty good blow, man. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, it, that, I've been there too. I know what that's like. It sucks, you know, but, uh, um, but I'll say this, man, I was really impressed with the U.S. Army at that moment and, uh, you know, the soldiers in it, you know, the, their, their spirit was really good. Their morale was still good. Um, it was a suck fest, but nonetheless, you know, they, they made me proud, you know, and uh, but they don't always make me proud. But they, these did bring me proud. And I say they don't always make me proud because later on um, I had to experience something that I did not like. Um, literally where I may have actually mentioned this before mm-hmm. where the Americans, some Americans were basically had been hit in an MRAP uh, RPG took serious casualties were out in the open and another platoon of infantry guys were literally sitting on their ass with their equipment off under shade and wouldn't go out to help them because it was too hot. And those were their words. Uh, it's too hot. And, uh, and I look back at that, that was kind of my turning point in Afghanistan where I realized we're not going to win, not like this. And if this goes on any further, we're really not going to win because the guys that are coming in now, except for the older guys, the senior guys, but the newer generation, um, they're moving in and moving up. I'm not sure they have the right, same mindset, you know, Mm -hmm. not saying all of them, um, don't get me wrong, but that particular day, I couldn't imagine ever where my platoon, my infantry platoon, or Delta Force, or Special Forces team would be sitting down in the shade with our shit off going, fuck, you know, I'd like to go help those guys out there, but it's a little hot, you know, while they're out there bleeding out, you know. I, 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 I don't know. In fact, the captain was called out by my cohort and goes, what the fuck? Why are you doing it? And his answer was, I can't get them to go. They won't listen to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But okay. You're the captain. You don't have magical powers, but you know, he was, he was hamstrung, but that was, he had no authority. They, they didn't give it to him, you know? And so because of that, I remember our guys had to, our guys, my Afghans had to go out there and pull these guys back, literally pulled them back. Okay. And rendered their first aid. It was insane. 
it's insane, right? So that's why I'm a little concerned about the future. Um, guy was asking me again tonight, you know, this conversation I had, he's like, well, you know, he goes, surely, you know, the Americans are better, you know, and, and, uh, you know, they'll win, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I go, I don't know, man, there was a time that was true. I said, but the world has changed, man. The West has changed. Um, we have as a, as societies in the West, we have emasculated our men, mm-hmm. right? Um, no longer is being a man a good thing. It's toxic. Okay, that's the word I like to use, toxic masculinity. Um, we want to effeminate, you know, we want effeminate males, right? Androgynous males, because we're all equal, right? We're all equal. So, we, can, you know, so it doesn't matter if you're a he or a her, you're a it now, or yeah. whatever the hell they want to call you. And so we're all equal, but it's not true. And so we've, we've taken this, we've adopted this social construct that, um, you know, that is really counter, it's really counterproductive all, all the way around, but particularly for war fighting, because our army is designed to do one thing, fight and win wars. Okay. But it's become a, um, besides becoming a social, you know, a political construct, you know, uh, a political correctness, social construct type, uh, architecture now, um, it's also becoming a, repository for yeah we got volunteers but these are men that you know that just don't seem to have the same grit anymore because they've been our society has watered them down you know you can probably take it all the way back to dr spock you know Mm -hmm. you know don't spank your kids don't do this you know and you know and now it's like you know we have we have done well basically here's what's happening the East is now becoming the West. Mm-hmm. What we were doing 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, hand-to-hand combat and just being rough and tough, um, we've turned that into, we're all equal, let's be sensitive, let's be kind, let's sing kubaya, you know, let's let's send them a memo before we attack that bunker and see if they want to just, you know, volunteer to give up, you know, whereas on the East, it's different, right? They're, they're training... They're, they're sending their 10-year-old boys out there with AK-47s learning how to kill you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the whole mindset is shifting. It's a paradigm shift. Even here, um, I was reading some articles um, about the Chinese, right? So the Chinese government wants to start programs where they start masculinizing their young men because they feel like, as in the West, their boys are becoming more effeminate, right? The skinny jeans, um, you know, all this stuff, this weird stuff, the Chinese recognize it also in their society and like, no, we're gonna we're gonna stop this and we're gonna start creating these these camps and these schools where we make boys into men, gladiators, right? Um, Spartans. And uh, so there is that that mindset is here, right? They wanna do that. In fact, they're actually experimenting now, from what I understand from all the reading, is they're looking at a hormone replacement to make these to create these super soldiers, yeah. right? Make them stronger, faster, you know, more endurance, um, you know. And uh, so there's there's already an interest in that on this side. But we've seen it already in the Middle East, you know, Africa, 10-year-old kids, 8-year-old kids with AK-47s out there slinging lead, and they don't care, you know. we we're, They are training their young boys to be warriors, to win, 
we're training our young boys to be girls. Yeah. And just kind of like, you know, everybody will get a trophy in this one, right? That's why we're, we're going to play so everybody gets a trophy. We're all, you know, equal. So I, that's kind of, you know, that's how I see it. I know that's going to piss a lot of people off out there and blah, 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 blah. blah. But man, let me tell you something. Unless you've been there, you know, you probably just need to just chill and listen out. Listen, because I've seen it, man. I have seen it. You know, tonight, this actually this earlier this morning, um, we went down to eat breakfast. I got to say this because this is like the topic of conversation over breakfast and it's kind of been lingering around all day long. But uh, so this resort that I'm at, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of Balinese here, um, you know, and other Indonesians. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, expats here, particularly Canadians and, and uh, Europeans and Russians and so forth. Um, so I'm standing in the chow, chow line, right? The buffet for breakfast. And it's pretty crowded. And uh, there's four teenage boys standing in front of me. They're all white kids, except for one. He's, I don't know what he is, uh, maybe Indian. And they're all around, uh, actually, they're all 16 years old. And, uh, you know, they're talking, blah, 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 blah. You know, they had, you know, the baseball caps on, soccer this, you know. And then I took a closer look and realized they all, they all had painted and manicured their fingernails red and pink. Except the one guy, his were black, but the other guys were red and pink, and they were like girl fingernails. They were nice, nicely manicured, you know, uh, you know, nice <laughs> polish on them. And I'm looking, and their and their mom's standing there talking to them about something, and these kids are 16 years old, and I'm thinking, okay, she's good with that, you know, she's good with that, and I'm been think, I'm thinking, if it was my wife, because I know she would do that. If it was my mother, she'd be like, get that shit off your fingernails, right? And freaking man up, you know? And your fingernails should look like mine. See, I don't have any. <laughs> Those are working hands, man, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, but I'm looking at this going, and she's good with that. I, if I was a mother, I'd be like, boy, I didn't, if I wanted a girl, I'd keep having babies till I got one or I'd adopt one, but you know what? I got a boy, be a man. That's what I would have told her, you know? And as a father, that's definitely what I told him. But since the mom was standing there, you would think she would be a little bit more like, hey, you know what, son? Kind of embarrassing me, you know? Yeah, You're not a girl, be a man, you know? But there was none of that. And and I was talking to another friend of mine. She's a, she's a Russian girl, a little bit younger. And she's like, you know, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the thing now, you know? Because like in Russia, she was telling me there's a couple of, pop stars you know you guys are like 18 19 20 and they do that right their fingernails are all painted so everybody else go oh that's cool they're doing it so i got to do it right so it, you know everybody's in vogue everybody paint your fingernails right and uh and and i get it but i'm not good with it right so there's a limit and and so this says a lot about to me again because i'm always looking at this you know, from a different perspective. I'm looking at it from like the uh, social construct, you know, outside of perspective looking in. And I, what I'm seeing is, okay, nobody's taught these kids, you know, to be themselves. Nobody's taught these kids to think independently. Nobody's thought, taught these kids what it means to be, you know, to be masculine. Um, and it's not a bad thing to be masculine. I'm sick and tired of people telling me that I'm, um, toxic male toxic masculine you know and uh, you know all that crap 
I'm glad that I'm that, right? Because you need me. You need guys like this. Mm-hmm. You need guys like me, right? You don't need these kids with these fingernail polish on, right? They, they're not winning wars for you. They're not going to save your ass. And if you think, well, if there weren't any wars, we wouldn't need that. Well, here's a news flash. Since the <laughs> since the beginning of man time, we've had over twelve thousand wars. Do you think it's ever going to end? Hell no, right? We are the warring eight. You know. Um, we are the warring ape. I mean, Gustav LeBron, he's a social scientist. Um, you know, he said it himself, man. We're going to, as long as there's three things, man, to be had. Money, power, pussy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Those are the three things that drive us, man. Um, and they're all interchangeable, right? At the end of the day, why do you want power? I want money. I want things. I want pussy. I want women. Why, why do you want money? Because I can get power. I get pussy. You know, it all adds up, man. It always, and I say pussy, right? I mean, I mean that in a way like procreation, yes. right? The ability, to, the ability to, to recreate yourselves, right? Um, that's what it always comes down to. And it is a form of racism, okay? It is. Um, ethnocentrism, what do you call it? Ethnocentrism. Mm-hmm. But essentially, that's why we have these societies, especially in this part of the world, where you can label everybody as Asians, but the Asians will tell you, hey, I ain't Chinese. I'm Indonesian. I ain't Indonesian. I'm Filipino. I'm not Filipino. I'm freaking Singaporean, right? They, they're they very clear about the distinction, and they don't see themselves as the same family. Um, they are very separate and distinct, and, uh, and that's the reality. That's just being honest. Um, that's being truthful. But, um, yeah, it's... Um, strange place we live in so then later on right well so the funny story gets even funnier right so then later on we meet this couple the canadian couple and they've got you know, a boy that's 15 which was really cool he's you know he's all in the special forces actually he was all in the seals and i talked him out of that <laughs> now he's all in the special forces right <laughs> it was funny right because my partner was telling him about me and i show up and he's in the pool with his dad he can't wait to talk to me you know and Dale, this, you know he says he wants to going to special forces you know he said he wants to be a seal and i got what and so and then you know we had we had the conversation about the seals right and i i enlightened them all right and uh so and uh anyway so now he wants to be a green beret and ultimately a delta force operator there you go you got it boy um <laughs> But we're sitting there, and then he had a daughter or sister who was 19 years old, and she was over there talking to these kids who are 16 years old, right? And um, and the mom was complaining. She's like, ah, we got to go eat. Go get your sister. And he went to go get her sister, and she didn't want nothing to do with him because she's talking to the boys, you know, and she's embarrassed, you know. And I looked, and I go, are those the guys with the painted fingernails again? And she goes, yeah. I said, you need to get your daughter out of there, right? So we had this little conversation. Goes, what do you mean your fingernails are painted, right? So it kind of caused a little commotion. But uh, um, so that kind of, you know, that, that wore itself into the evening and then, uh, you know, went on from there. But, um, yeah, man, we're, we live in a different time, different place, different world. And I think there's a paradigm shift. The East is becoming the West. The West is becoming the East. Um, and it's not a good thing. At the, at the end of the day, if anybody thinks that everybody live, want to live in one world, under one world government, and saying kubaya, you're full of shit. If you're an American and thinks that, you need to get your head out your ass, man. Get out of the country. Get out. I lived in over 90 countries, and I can tell you the rest of the world don't want to be our friends. They don't want to live in harmony with us. Um, I'm telling you that right now because they are all, they all care about their tribe. 
That's what it comes down to. You want to call us racist in America? Man, we're the last racist people on this planet. Try coming to some of these other countries. Um, and I'm going to tell you right now, go to Hong Kong, go to China, see how that works out for you. Even though it's a white guy, it don't work out that well for you. But if you're black, you're really dumb. You're really dumb. Uh, you get no slack. I've been getting discriminated against all the time just for being white. Um, this is a different world we're living in, and we're gonna. there's going to be a paradigm shift. And uh, there is no utopia that everybody's hoping for out there. Um, you're a moron if you think that's possible. If you think that there's a future without war, again, you're another idiot. In fact, you're getting ready to experience probably the worst war we'll ever, as man, uh, experience. And it's coming. It's coming. And guess what? You guys set it up. You guys prepare the battlefield for them. And uh, I say you, not you, but them. You know, we know who them are, right? So um, <laughs> I know I'm making a lot of enemies. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what's coming. And uh, yeah, just because we don't talk about it doesn't make it not real. And It may not come, but I think it will come. Like I said, all the indicators are there, man. The talk is there, the chatter is there. People that don't know anything about warfare are talking about it. People that on a day-to-day basis have no interest in anything other than their job and making money are paying attention. They're paying attention, man. And, uh, you know, they, they hear the war drums. And I can, I can tell you from personal experience with people in other countries that have come and asked me for some things, that this is bigger than just, you know, Joe Public worrying about it. This is at another level, at the state level. People are going, oh, shit. Hmm. It's coming, man. It's coming. And uh, we allowed it. We allowed it. We allowed it with all the bullshit shenanigans, you know. We, we you know, all this stuff, is we allowed it. This COVID thing, as long as we keep playing this COVID game, we're allowing it, man. You know, we're making a production out of something that's less deadlier than the cold virus now. Uh, you know, really. And as long as we're doing that, it's like a smoke screen for the bad guys. Like, yeah, let them, let them keep dealing with that while we're doing this over here. It's getting set up. Tell you, man, live in a, we live in a society of idiots. Um, dumb masses. I like to use that word because the Romans use it, you know. The dumb masses, you know, feed the dumb masses, bread and circus, man. Keep them preoccupied and the Senate can do whatever they want, you know. And ultimately what happened? Rome collapsed, you know. That's where we're at, you know. That's where we're at. <laughs> yeah. Oh, always a cheery talk with Dale. <laughs> World's going to hell, thermonuclear. Hey, you know what? I look at it as like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And uh, I'm going to make the most of today. Yeah, man. So I was telling what are you going to do, man? What are you going to do? You know, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here because I know when the military gets here, they're going to need sources, right? And I'm going to be a source, right? I'm going to be a war chief, man. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to come over there to Bali and I'm going to be your minister of propaganda. I will there join the Indonesian government. I will. They can take all the revenue from this podcast. And uh, I will use my sources that I've built through this podcast, and I will be your I'll be your right hand man, and uh, yeah, I will help wage a subtropical jungle warfare against the Chai Coms in twenty thirty. And you know what? I couldn't die a happier way. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we are going to get reports of the FBI, the CIA. NSA. Dale, if, uh, if you think this is the episode that put it over, 
I got a bridge to sell you because I, I think they've been following this podcast. Overthrow the world. I've done that. I do that twice a week, Dale. I've I had on a guy from the Secret Service, the Bomb Squad, telling my listeners how to build bombs with Home Depot uh, supplies. I mean, if I'm if yeah, there's no list I'm not on right now, so I've just yeah. kind of accepted it. And uh, yeah. for all those three letter three letter agencies listening. I will happily work for you guys as well. Just give me some money and uh, give me a card to go visit Dale, and uh, you guys can work with us too as we set up our our Dale will be the war chief, and uh, yeah, I that's how I that's how I hope to die mid twenty thirties on an island with Dale and Sorry, and being the minister of propaganda with an army of canines fighting the CCP Navy. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I that's how I intend on going. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, we'll see how that works out. Um, yeah. Uh, anyways, I'll be back states here soon for a little while. Um, got some business to take it, as you know. Uh, we're gonna be doing some events together, and uh, looking forward to that and the filming, and and it should be a lot of fun. It's gonna be a fucking blast. Uh, kind of decompress a little bit in Florida, in my home there with my my younger daughter, and then. Uh, We'll come back here. Hopefully, by the time we come back, everything's opened up. The travel bans relieved, uh, you know, been uh, relieved, and you know, we keep back to some some level of normalcy. Which already today, I got a message from American Airlines saying, "Oh, you come to Japan, um, now you have to be tested for this new N one 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 seven A plus two plus two plus never going away virus, right? Like what? You know, so now they got another super high speed virus variant that you got to be tested for." And I'm like, where am I going to get that test at? Because I'm pretty sure they don't test for that yet here because this is a new virus, right? And doesn't require a different, kind of got different tests. But uh, I have to have all that done this week before I get on my airplane uh, next week. So don't be surprised if I don't make it back because of this, you know? And I'm in quarantine for 14 days in, in Tokyo. <laughs> well, then fuck it. We'll be doing, we'll be doing podcasts from Tokyo. God damn it. Yeah, the rings. All right, man. Well, Coolio. All right, Dale. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, good luck in your in your state-sanctioned blackout. I hope the uh, the roaming patrols don't come take you down. Um, well, that's I'm good, man. I ain't going over. I'm going to bed. Jesus. All right. All right, my man. Well, until next time, Dale. As always, American Badass will be in the description. Sticking to the Top Gun. It's a fantastic book. Buy it, you cheap fucks. It's fantastic. And um, okay. till next time, Dale. I'll see you, brother. Yeah, man. God bless. Bye-bye.